This is Beth. And this is Jeff. And this is your Enneagram Coach, the podcast, where we're here to help you to understand yourself with astonishing clarity so that you can break free from self-condemnation, fear, and shame by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. Hey, well, welcome back, friends. And we today we are having a conversation with John Driver and Reggie Dabbs about a per, their personal journey of two friends and how they have began to engage and to fight against racism both in, in their own hearts as well as the church. And they've written a new book. It's going to be available October 12th called Not So Black and White. And we wanted to use our platform here at YEC, as we have in the past, to honor these stories and to give voice to a really important issue, particularly coming from two people whom uh, we have come to deeply respect and believe that they have something that can contribute in very healthy ways uh, to what we are experiencing in this season of our lives. So uh, welcome, John and Reggie. Yeah, so glad to be good with you. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, hey guys, great to have you here. Well, guys, why don't we start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself. So Reggie, why don't you go first? Tell us about what what did it, what your work is and a little bit about your uh, own personal life. Awesome. Uh, I have the great honor of traveling around the world and speaking to people, giving hope to people. I do conferences uh, almost on every continent in the globe. I also am a motivational speaker in public schools. So I'm not able to say Jesus or make it religious, but I get to do about 1.5 million students, public school students face-to-face every year. And it's it's wow. just great to to be able to see different cultures, different atmospheres, and and I, it's the greatest yes. job ever. Mm-hmm. Now, Reggie, what was it that led to you pursuing a platform of influence like this? What was it? Something tied to your own personal? Story? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was six years old when I was told I was in a, a foster care because my parents my parents were older. All my friends' parents were young, and so I, one day in the car, I was like, "Why y'all old?" That's all. And then they <laughs> and they told me that I was in foster care, but they also told me I had a brother and two sisters. My mom kept my brother, kept my sisters, but gave me away. But immediately when they said that, they go, but we have you now. And then the older I got, the more I realized if it wasn't for that husband and wife, that man and woman, where would I be? My mom gave me away to her favorite teacher, whose husband was the school janitor, and they saved my life. And as I got older, I kept thinking to myself, well, why would they do this? And and as I got older and started asking questions, then I realized it's the hope that they had in Jesus that they they reached out and helped me. And I have nothing else to do but to do that for the world. I didn't realize it would be this kind of platform or at this level, yeah. but uh, but God has a way of doing great things. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Reggie. Well, I, and our next guest is John Driver. Now, John is becoming uh, mm-hmm. a dear friend of ours. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've not told every, anyone yet this. We've not announced it anywhere, yeah. but... Uh, we are working on our next book, and John is helping us to write it. So uh, we've become very familiar with John, collaborating on a particular book. So, John, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us about what, what you do as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Uh, so I'm a, a pastor. That's my uh, day job, if you will. I've been doing that for 21 years now in various ways. And I guess about 10 years ago, I began writing uh with different publishers and different agents and uh, pr- predominantly as a collaborator. And Reggie Dabbs, my good friend, was actually the first collaborative project that I ever worked on. We did a book with Thomas Nelson 
and that story he just told you uh, is one that we wrote in that first book. And um, we've been friends for a long time. And, and so now I just have this, uh, much like he said, I, I never expected to do what I get to do to partner with uh, authors and, and others who have a message or a, a story that needs to be stewarded. And so I get to help come alongside them and steward that message with them. And so it's just, uh, it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of work, but it's the kind of work I love. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, I live in middle Tennessee uh, as do you guys. And uh, I have a, a wife of 21 years almost and one 13 year old daughter who is uh, my pride and joy. So. Oh, that's all. She loves the volleyball, I tell you, and that she she's uh, <laughs> Reggie's been to some games actually. So uh, yeah, he's, is that right? Yeah, yeah man, absolutely. <laughs> now um, I didn't ask. I'll get. I'll ask Reggie after you, John. But uh, just a little bit of insight. Um, so tell us about your understanding of your enneagram type and how how'd you get introduced to the enneagram and what's your number. So my wife Laura is. Uh, she was the first one. Uh, in in the house to uh, begin to explore the Enneagram. And I did not like it. I did not like the idea uh, of putting myself, because, you know, I'm a pastor and and felt like I was pretty aware of my issues and other people's issues. And so you couldn't put me in a box and all of the classic, you know, uh, resistances to uh, things like this. And so uh, she began to study and, and she has a way of, of, of persuading me to do anything that she wants. And so um, cause she, she's always right. You know? So um, I began, in fact, she reminded me the other day, and I haven't told you guys this, but one of the first podcasts that I listened to, uh, Beth was on a podcast talking about sixes. And so I am a counterphobic six. She said, I, was, I don't remember all of this. She said, I came in from mowing the yard, listening to a podcast where you talked about a counterphobic six. And I was like, oh, crap, that's me. Like, you know, it was like this, <laughs> this, this whole thing. So I began to read and, and explore. And she, yes. has, she has since become a, an Enneagram uh, practitioner. Uh, she works in the corporate world and, and has that certification uh, really to use it there. But we use it in ministry a lot as well. But mainly we just use it to, to continue to grow and who we are to understand the the broken parts of ourselves that we invite Christ into, and so it's uh, it's it's still a journey, so much to learn, but it's been a great tool uh, to to yeah. sort of unveil a lot of different things inside. So yes, now Reggie, you're a little new to the Enneagram. Matter of fact, I think it was John who said, "Hey, we're going to be in this Enneagram <laughs> podcast. Take this test." So. <laughs> But uh, for though our Enneagram enthusiast, you may have already picked up on some of what his type may be. But Reggie, where did you end up landing on which number are you? Well, this is going to be a no-brainer. I'm a nine. <laughs> so I'm a peacemaker. Of course I am. Public schools. And it's sad because I thought, oh, man, there's no way this is going to get me. There's no... <laughs> uh, it's just horrid it's i'm i'm just horrified that you people knew me before i said hello (laughs) (laughs) but that's okay we we read your internal diary my wife she read it and she went oh that's you that how did they do that i said i even tried to answer questions wrong and they still (laughs) got me It is, but hey, I love it. This is fun because Jeff and John are both sixes and both counterphobic sixes. And then Reggie, you and I are both nines. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and and we all know that the 
the nine and six relationships are always the easiest (laughs) relationships. They're the best relationships. Yeah. Never a day of problems. That's right. (laughs) It was funny when we were on the phone in the car, uh, we were recently had a meeting with John and we were driving back uh, with our son and Beth and I in the car and, and we're just planning all kinds of deviant (laughs) pranks against people and best like yeah it's just you two being sixes that's that's that whole meeting was just you two being sixes pranks being provocative silly funny oh yeah that's right <laughs> well I, I i'd like to start a little bit because um the what's special about this book is it from my understanding it started out of your own personal relationship with one another and tell us a little bit about how you guys became friends and really some of those initial conversations about race. Well, uh, you know, Reggie and I, so uh, he's a little bit older than me, and um, we grew up both in Tennessee, and, and we're in the same denomination, and really we're at the same uh, youth camp a lot, uh, mm-hmm. and and that was where we sort of mm-hmm. didn't know each other in a, in a huge way, but we kind of grew up together in that same culture um and again he was we became friends when he was here in wilson county uh and i was a youth pastor still and he was doing school rallies and he actually went to college with my pastor and so we were you know we were having 300 kids a night and doing rallies and he was in all the high schools and we were just kind of running the roads together and he came into my office one day i'll never forget it and just said hey i want you to write my book and i was like Mm -hmm. i'd never thought of i didn't even know collaboration was a thing you know, that, that you help an author. And so that, that really began more of our, I guess, I mean, we talk a lot, poor Reggie hears from me a lot. Um, cause you know, we're constantly, this is our third book together. And, um, mm. that process, man, he's just become such a dear friend and, and someone that, uh, that I love dearly and that I trust a lot in life. And, uh, our whole family feels that way about his whole family. And so that, that's sort of how it came about, uh, in our relationship. Reggie, you want to add anything to that? that I left out. No, but with all this time growing up together, spending time together, we never talked about racism until last, last May when the Mm. world went crazy. Sure. Now, you know what, I I guess in some ways, you know, that that's when a certain population of people in America recognize that there is a substantial issue that's still happening. Now, what was it? I mean, for all these years, uh, you guys hadn't discussed much about race. Um, what was it that really precipitated you, John, asking some more questions about race? You know, um, it's, it, it's, uh, things like the Enneagram and, and recovery and some other things in my life caused me to, and I see this a lot in, in reactions of church people as a pastor, uh, in the white church that we're, it's it's very easy to be insulted by certain topics and racism is one of those because I was so convinced because I have no desire to be racist. I don't, I don't wish harm upon someone. I was sort of raised, you know, in the eighties and nineties, the colorblind sort of culture where you don't acknowledge race uh, because that in itself could be racist. And, uh, and so we're beginning to hear these things, but I had come to a place where I realized what a Pharisee I had been for most of my life and not the kind of Pharisee that walks around acting like he's better than everybody else. Uh, the super humble looking Pharisee who still believes that God needs more from my efforts in order for me to be justified. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's that a different kind of, of Phariseeism that people don't recognize. So I would be the best person to serve you 
but I, I felt that I needed those works. I needed those things in order to, because I knew better a little bit. God expected more of me than others and grace wasn't just enough. And when that grace sort of began to tear down those walls, I realized that recognizing my need for Christ and recognizing the sin of my life, my pride, my my control, my anger, all those things that most people just think of as normal. Oh, that's just normal stuff. I'm not a drug addict or a racist, right? When I began to recognize that, um, it became so freeing because I, I realized I, I don't stand on anything but God's grace. And so if you fast forward that story, I, you know, I'm hearing about Black Lives Matter. I'm hearing about these things. And I was a history teacher. And that's really reflected in this book. There's a lot of history in this book um, and a political science teacher, those kinds of things. And when I heard Black Lives Matter, and this is part of what we can, I confess in the book, and my first reaction in 2014 really was I, I, just looking at it logically, I think all lives matter. Um, I wasn't trying to, I was just literally thinking through because I'm a very um, analytical sort of thinker. Like I, I, I have philosophical issues with that. And my wife, again, uh, who is such a source of wisdom in my life, turned to me and said, hey, you're making a lot of great logical arguments, but there's one thing our black friends in the church are asking you to do that you're not doing with all your logic. And I said, what's that? She said, you're not listening. You're not listening to what they're saying. And so I began to listen differently because the gospel had opened up my heart, even though I've been a minister for all these years, my gospel, the gospel opened up my heart to maybe ask different kinds of questions. And so when George Floyd, when I, I sat in the bed and watched the George Floyd video, I cried when I heard that man call out for his mama, especially I cried and I turned to my wife and I said, it is just, we've been sitting here or I've been sitting here too long talking about things and it's time for us to show up for something. And it was the next day when I called my friend Reggie and I had to humble myself and be vulnerable enough to say, Hey, I, it was, it was hard. That's we model these conversations in the book. Each chapter starts with one of these conversations of, Hey man, <laughs> you know, systemic racism or whatever hot button term, and we address them all, you know, mm-hmm. whatever can turn you off from listening. Hey man, how has this actually affected you? And that began the journey as he began to tell me about his life because I had never asked, I had never shown up before and I was ready to show up and I still have so far to go, but I began to show up at least for one friend in a different way. You know, Reggie, I mean, that, that was one of the things that as I was reading it and hearing about the conversation. So, uh, as a black man, it just doesn't seem like in your experience that you always have permission or that people are curious enough to ask you about what your life has been like as a black man in America. Uh, John was the first, and I'm 58 years old, and uh, and I've grown up in ministry, leading ministries, and uh, no one's ever asked. So when he asked, it was it was kind of it didn't take me back at all because I know how smart John is. And I, and, I, and I thought it was just cool. And so we just, I said, ask away, whatever question you have. And it was cool because he caught me because I have a niece and a nephew that live in Minneapolis. I have a son who lives in right outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So when I saw George Floyd and the policeman, immediately and my mind goes, that could have been my nephew. That could have been my niece. That could have been my son. So I had a whole different mind complex. So when he started asking me questions, I was uh, answering from a father's point of view, uh, uncle's point of view, uh, you know, protecting a loved one point of view. So it got, I knew I could be honest with him and just say the truth. I never dreamed I would be a part of a book like this because the stuff that have happened to me when I was growing up, I was taught by my dad, even if it is race, don't make it about race because then you're the one that ends up with the hate. 
So just keep moving, keep moving forward. And, uh, and I do my best to do that, but the church needs to have the answers and they need an answer for this. And we keep telling them, Hey, we got to get past the insult of talking about race. And, and we got to get past that. You know, don't be insulted. Let's just talk about it. It's not, I know it's not your fault. I know you wasn't there in 1963. So <laughs> let's still talk about it because you can't change the past, but we can change our future. You know, we can't change what happened yesterday, but we can't forget it either. So we get to grab it and pull it and change it so that tomorrow's better for our kids. We'll be back after a quick break. Moms, it's here. Registration is open for Enneagram for Moms cohort. Yes, from May 6th to May 13th, you can grab your spot to be in one of the cohorts with moms of the same Enneagram type plus with a certified Enneagram coach leading the way. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing to be with like-minded moms who really understand what it's like to be on your journey as a mom from your type? Yes, it will feel so validating, reassuring, affirming, encouraging. You don't have to mom alone anymore. Go to yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts to grab your spot today because there's only 25 spots available for each cohort. Now we have a cohort for all nine types in the daytime and one in the evening. But when the spots are filled up, they're gone. So grab your spot today at yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts. The groups start the week of June 10th and go until the week of July 29th. There are 90 minute sessions and there's eight of them. Plus you'll get a free Facebook group community where you can continue the conversation with one another. Join today. You know, Reggie, you like you're highlighting some things that uh, and reading the book that I thought was really interesting. There, that there's time spent just to prepare white readers for talking yeah. about a subject that they can be very reactive to. Um, and but it even sounds like uh, you just mentioned a relative that was almost coaching you on how to have a conversation about race in America as a black man. I mean, tell me, like, what are what are common responses that you get whenever you're just trying to share about your lived experience in America? How are white, white Christian people responding to you? And what are the big hangups? Uh, uh, now, not all white Christians respond the same way, but the hangups sure. are, are go like this. Well, that's not me. That's not where I live. That's that's not in my neighborhood. That's not my family. That's that's not how we grew up. And and uh, in just this past week, in a conversation about this, it with a bunch of pastors that came up, and a man said that. And I looked at him and I said, "I'm gonna be honest with you. I wish I could have grown up the way you did." And he goes, "Well, you didn't have yeah. to say that." I said, "Well, no, but I really wish I did because I wouldn't have the memories or the stories or the uh, the, uh, the the events." that make me have to think otherwise than what you're saying right now. I said, so I wish I could have grown up like you, but I didn't. And, uh, yeah. and you know, but it's okay. And, I, and it's cool because he's a very, very good friend and it ended well, but you just got to be able yes. to get past the insult, get past that. What is white privilege? You got to get past that to really figure out, hey, how can we change this so our kids can have a better world? Well, you know, whenever you guys are writing this book, you spent substantial time uh, just kind of deconstructing words, yeah. 
just so people yeah. can understand, aside from the theater and how that is all transpired on social media and news, all that those different things politically, to to speak to the real issue that these words are speaking to, you know, John, why why do you think that's so important to clarify exactly what these words mean and how people are using them in different ways? Well, we were going to talk about the fact, and, and you mentioned that there, you know, it's a day and time where anyone can publish anything to to the entire world, and, and that's the first time in history, and it has its benefits. And, and but at the same time, the words then are being hijacked and they're being weaponized uh, by various sides, and, and we're generally worried about whatever side is the opposite of our either political ideology or, or the way we see the world, and so they. The words are really just being used for confirmation biases above all else. If if that you know, if you can throw the word right now liberal out, and there are those, you know, Reggie and I are two uh, Christian conservative ministers in ministry for years and years, uh, and and there's this uh, stigma towards like, oh, you guys are just trying to be woke now, or you guys are are, are you're you're being liberal now, and if it goes far, well, you're trying to be social Marxist now, or you're trying to advocate CRT. And so I'm dropping some of the words, and I guarantee you, the listeners, each one of those elicits some sort of emotional response, even before it's a cognitive or a logical place. There is a there's for most people like a, if you just put it in that category, then it, it changes things. And when we went back through history, we found that that's a pattern and a theme. Uh, if you go back, Martin Luther King talked about it a lot. He talked about the white Christian moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. And that described me to a T that, uh, that the white Christian moderate is against racism, but is, is more so against whatever someone has weaponized to convince them that this is disorder. So the racism itself is not a disorder of a, it's not injustice enough for an action. And so you're sort of picking which evil you're going to to have. And generally, this, the words they used were the same. They called them communists, and they called them whatever. And there are communists, and there are socialists, and there are things that we don't stand for. But we just don't think using those terms should be, um, from a gospel perspective, a reason to to not listen, because it's just manipulation at that point. And we are. We're all we all have to recognize um, that somebody is trying to get us to hear one side of things. It's a very extreme world. And so the real question of the book is, hey, does the gospel call believers to end racism among their relationships? Because we get this a lot. We get this, and these, again, the words that matter. Well, this is a sin problem, not a skin problem. Uh, you know, and, and we, we, delve into that a lot, the history of ethnicity versus race. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it's those words are not being used in order to listen or respond. They're being used in order to disengage because now I don't, I don't have to touch that. I don't have to listen to how this affects people. And so when you, and that's, what's so great. When I really ask my friend, how is this affecting you? And he tells me, my dad told me we're not to make everything about race. You know, my reaction to that is, well, you shouldn't have to anymore. It's my turn not to make everything about race, but it's my turn to take up the burden that you and your family have been carrying and at least stand there, you know, on your behalf to speak as, to speak out for what's right that is affecting. And that's so why I can prefer one that I love in the body of Christ. And we go biblically through what that really means, because otherwise we're all just walking around worried about semantics 
and we're not really affecting the issues that we believe Jesus is affecting and certainly affected when he walked the earth. Reggie, well, whenever you guys decided to put this book together, what what was it what was your hope and the message that you were hoping to uh, to address? by collaborating um, with John and writing this book? I really wanted the church that, to see that, that, one, they do have a platform that they can say something about race, and two, that our faith in Jesus changes everything. And it like, I have glasses on, right? Before I, I knew Jesus, let's say I was like this, and sometimes it's bleary when it's up close, I can't see it too well. But the day I said, Jesus, come into my life, the day I did Romans 10, 9, confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, he gave me his glasses. And when I put his glasses on, I see every, I see differently, I see differently. And I can even, because of my faith in Jesus, I can see f- my faith can change the way I see racism, the color of people's skin. I can see it the way Jesus saw it, the way he reacted to it, what he did to change it. And it changes everything. And my hope is that the church goes, you know what, with my faith, I can make a stand with this racism situation. And and in my personal church people, my one-on-one relationships, I can like make a decision. You know what? I'm going to live differently. I'm going to do this differently because one by one by one by one, now all of a sudden that's five people. And then five becomes 10, becomes 100, becomes 200. And all of a sudden on a small scale, we're changing a huge problem on our relationships one-on-one. That's our hope. What's been interesting about your book that uh, is super helpful is um, the how it addresses history. And I don't think a lot of people recognize some of the the racism that the church participated in. You know, Reggie, you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, yeah, we're not we're not trying to resolve or solve the past, but it definitely is an influence. It is a part of the conversation that needs to be had. Uh, tell us, how, I mean, how are Christians? How should we be relating to this idea about the how racism? and the church participated in it. A, a lot of times, uh, Christians, and I, I'm just going to say white Christians today, they they know that what happened yesterday was their ancestors. So they go, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. But we're not, we're, that's not what I'm trying to get. I'm not trying to get white Christians to say, I'm sorry for what I didn't even do. What I'm trying to get white Christians to do is to go, you know, that did happen then. And it happened to one of Reggie's ancestors. So how do I do that? What do I say? You know what I say? Reggie, I'm sorry that your family had to go through that, but we are in Jesus. I'm not going to forget yesterday. I'm going to walk with you today. That's what John did. When John literally picked up the phone and called me right after the George Floyd death, he literally said, I'm just wanting to walk with my friend. And you have no idea how much that changes everything. And on a personal basis, what if the church says, we just want to walk with our friends? We just want, what if the church was able to pick up the church phone and just call and say, hey, every Reggie in America who's hurting today, we got you. We got you. We can't change what happened, but we're going to walk you through it. We're going to go. If we have to go back in our past, let's do it. To get to our present, let's make it happen so that we can have a future. We have to do that because we got Jesus. And and that's our goal. Just let's walk together, together. Yes. Yeah, history you know, it, history leaves a legacy. That's a big point of our book. And and because there is that whole idea 
that Reggie was just referencing that, oh, well, we can't change. We can't change what was. We shouldn't hold. That's really where I was even like, hey, I, I did not want that. But I wasn't recognizing and how there is a legacy. And that's why the, we deal a lot with the idea of these. They sound like hot button terms, but the systemic issues and also the heart issues. And what we really make a statement is, is look, the heart, excuse me, the system doesn't have a heart. People do. So both need to be addressed in different ways. Uh, but they both need to be addressed. We can't like use one as an excuse not to not to you know touch the other. And so it, there's a there's systemic issues in the church. There's systemic issues in our nation. And and so we, we try to let that history be not not just a, a thing to look back on and lament. Though we certainly begin there, but to say, hey, if I can't even respect you enough to understand, take time to understand what it is that 400 years of atrocities has done to the legacy it's not i don't know reggie is a great friend among many other friends i have he he's not using any of that as some excuse or some uh, victim mentality and those are sort of the the ways we can dismiss the past as an influencer on the present but you guys know from recovery that you can't go through a recovery process and even the enneagram does this for us a lot without some sort of inventory without the courage a uh, fearless inventory of where I've been. And so what, you know, what the Enneagram did for me when I began to realize, oh, I'm motivated so much by fear is I looked back over my life and my patterns and my trends. And so we believe that the nation is taking an inventory about our our racist past. And we can say that it doesn't make the, the nation all bad or all good. The nation doesn't have a heart. The nation is inanimate. It's the people within the nation. And and we believe because of the gospel, it's okay to say that all of us are fallen and that we struggle. I'm way worse than a racist. <laughs> My individual sin was enough for the, the very son of God to be crucified. So like, I, I don't stand justified because I'm quote unquote, not racist, or I intend well. My intentions have never gotten me anywhere good. It's only when I let go of those things and I'm free. So as the nation takes this inventory, it seems as if many white Christians, myself included in that for so long, are standing on the sidelines throwing rocks at it from you know the, the the terms that we're using and instead of engaging in it with courage and going hey if the gospel's real and god's sovereign and, and the and the the process of what he does in us works i've seen it work in me then it works here as well so i don't have to be insulted every time someone says oh my goodness because the bottom line is to your first question jeff in 1667 uh when we were just colonies and there was a law passed in Virginia that had never been allowed before because Christians, white Christians knew slavery was not a foregone conclusion, which is kind of how we believe in the modern age. Oh, this was always this way. It was not a foregone conclusion. It was going to be that. They were debating this issue from the beginning uh, all the way through the co- colonization process, all the way through the revolution, all the way through the early years, uh, knowing it was going to explode almost like a hot potato in somebody's hands. It eventually did in Abraham Lincoln's. But in 1667, they passed a law that said you could baptize your slaves, but you don't set them free because before that, you're not allowed to enslave a brother or sister in Christ. And so, and this is before separation of church and state because we're still a part of mm-hmm. England at that moment. But it, understand that there was a moment there, like you said, that the church missed it. And we began to see all throughout history where the church missed it, where we could have taken a different path to say, no, we see we're going to elevate our citizenship as believers in Christ above any other earthly citizenship. And we're going to honor what God's word says. 
And so we just want to do something different now. We, we could still make those same mistakes in different ways now, but missing that inventory, missing that chance to say, hey, we're going to take the gospel and live it first and let all other ideologies follow that one and let them even be formed and informed by that one first, regardless of what we do in a voting booth or how we feel about what's going on. We're going to start there with God's ways and let God's ways trickle down to all the other ways of our lives. You know, one of the things that um, I, I can think of two situations, it, just in my own personal life. So I, I was put up for adoption um, at birth. And so uh, my parents had split up, my biological parents had split up and um, my father wanted my mom to have an abortion uh, if they were going to get back together. They had already had a child in their teen years. And so I got put up for adoption and then adopted by Johnny and Gerald McCord. But uh, when I was 30, I found my biological mom uh, and was able to renew that relationship. Now, it, what was interesting is that I, I, was, I was raised by two uh, white parents in Texas, uh, but I looked very different than them. Um, and lo and behold, I, I come to find out that uh, my mom uh, is a Mexican and which was just shocking to me, like, oh, okay, you know, I, I find someone that I look like, but I found out that my dad was actually half Cherokee and his last name was Brown. And I thought to myself, like, why would a Cherokee family have the last name Brown? Like the, the past is present. I mean, it, it, it gives context to why things are the way that they are now. I remember reading uh, Nathan Hatch's book, The Democratization of American Christianity, and how church planning and Christianity took root in colonial America, and how it shaped the trajectory for modern-day denominations and religious expressions. I mean, there, there, even today, those first seeds of religion here in the United States— still play itself out culturally throughout theological and denominational traditions. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's a reason if I'm not mistaken, Reggie, I mean like there culturally the black church is what it is because of in, in light of its history, it, you can't understand the contemporary black community apart from its history is what I'm saying. And so we, but as human beings, we're storytellers. We, we make, it's not just propositions, but our our stories give context to what we're doing. And so, you know, when Reggie, I, being a pastor in a denomination, I mean, how do you see this, the idea of the church kind of replaying its old models for how to deal with race, but they're playing it out again in our contemporary conversation? Yeah, it, I see it that it's losing, that it's losing, the church is losing its its voice, its value. Um, and it's a lot. Okay, after George Floyd happened, I started getting calls from a lot of my white pastor friends. And they were like, what do we say? Do we, or do we say anything? And some of them said, Reggie, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to say nothing because I can't lose the tithe. And I understand that. Mm. I understand that. Right? But there comes a part where you have to let faith come in, 
where whether you lose your tithe or not, you got to stand for what's right. One of my pastors, I I'd been there not 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 long ago before Floyd passed away, and and I looked at him and I said, "Who's your head usher?" And as he has had a head usher was a black man. I said, "Dude, hang up the phone, call him, and ask him. Just say, hey, as pastor, what do you hear? What do you need me to say tomorrow morning at church? It was Saturday night. Next morning was Sunday." He called me back like an hour and a half later, and he goes, that is the greatest conversation I think I've ever had. I said, why? I said, because my usher, the black man, head usher in my church, was praying before I called him. And he says, God, tell my pastor what to say. Tell my pastor, give him some words, some wisdom. And the wisdom that God gave pastor was to call him. He goes, I never dreamed you would call me. But he sculpted it and was able to say something to his church, ended up with a standing ovation. And he did it. Why? Because he literally did what I think Black America wants white America to do. Don't cheer me on as I'm walking down the street with my sign. Hold the sign beside me. Hmm. Walk mm-hmm. with me. That's what, and that's what John did. We went on a journey and we just started walking together. We had oh, no idea it would end up being a book like this. But why not? Why not take our conversation, let it go public, and let the world see we can do something better, stronger, faster with Jesus on our side? You know, Reggie, you brought up a a profound point there about Christianity losing its influence. And, you know, earlier John mentioned the recovery world. There's another idiom that I've heard time and time again. You can't change what you don't name. And I— you know, it's interesting to think about that this is an invitation. This isn't a challenge for the church. It is an invitation for the church to show up at such a meaningful moment. But to show up, like, you're not you're not asking, or I don't think you guys, as I read, you're not looking for a social movement. You're talking about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our response to dealing with issues of racism. So, Reggie, why don't you share a little bit about how you see the gospel applying to how helping Christians to understand how to respond to the issues of racism? It's, 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 um, we got to go to the book. Uh, when, when John recounted Jesus going to the well in Samaria, and it was noon, it was hot, and he sit by the well, and a Samaritan woman came up to get water, and Jesus asked her for something to drink. And and then what I look at there is what was in parentheses, because there's a lot of parentheses moments in our life, in our world, and all mm-hmm. around us. The first thing in parentheses says, after Jesus asked her for a drink of water, it said, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Man, that's racism straight up right there. And how they, even some Jewish people won't even go through Samaria because they don't want to have nothing to do with those people. Why did they not like Samaria or Samaritans? What was it? It was their religious beliefs. It was their ancestry. It was their religion that said they're better than them. They're better than those people. We're better than them. But now wait, why is Jesus at noon sitting by a well? And why would he ask that lady for something to drink? What I love about Jesus, he's all man. He's still humanity. So if it's a desert town and it's noon, he was thirsty. And he put his physical need in the hands of a woman that his Jewish culture said he's supposed to hate. But he didn't. 
Yes. But he didn't. Instead, he had a conversation with her that changed everything. Long story short, she was everywhere in her conversation with Jesus. She talked about how she didn't like the Jewish religion, the Jewish people. She's talked about her own problems, how not married, doesn't have a husband, had five husbands, all this stuff. And you know, Jesus, when she, he could have listed off 25 different things that could have corrected her, but he did not. Instead, he leaned in and he listened. He listened so that he yes. can get a platform to change that lady's life. And he did. He did. And it was great. The only other thing in parentheses in that story is it says all the disciples went to get lunch. I don't think he's ever sent all the disciples away to get lunch, but he did that day. And the, my little thought in the book and to everyone here is simply this. What kind of Christian are you? I mean, are we deep enough? I mean, they walked with Jesus, talked. They they performed miracles, man. They He walked on water with Jesus. But yet and still, he says, you guys go get lunch. And he had to send them away so that he can have a conversation with someone that their culture said was wrong so that he can change a woman's life for history, for eternity. You know, Reggie, hearing you say that, the way that uh, some, a thought came to mind about those uh, those other passages, they're kind of parenthetical phrases where Jesus says to his disciples, do you see this man? Do you see this woman? Just by the fact that Jesus is having conversation with this woman, is he's illustrating for us what who we are to be as his followers, that we're to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, particularly whenever there's all kinds of objections that people are going to bring about even that this conversation should even be had. But the the question is, do we see? Do, do we see that there are brothers and sisters are suffering and they they have stories to tell and their voices need to be heard? And that their passions need, we need to be join, joining in in addressing some of these issues. I, I, I love what you guys are, the invitation that you guys extend to the church, um, that it's not just here, study these issues and work them out theologically, but it's participate. Uh, John, in, in some of your conversations with Reggie over writing this book, you know, what have, what's been your top one or two things that you've come to learn as a pastor uh, and also as a white man that would be a encouragement for others as they start to participate and listen? You know, probably an unexpected encouragement would be as uh, around a word that really inflames people. And Reggie's already said it once, but you can't hardly say this word without people just checking out and that's white privilege. And when, when we really study that and the thing about it is when you have a friend that you love, um, you begin to realize, for example, in the story he just told it, it wasn't just the woman at the well that missed out uh, on the disciples because they weren't ready to be the kind of believers to help. It, were, it was also the disciples who missed out on what Jesus wanted to do in her life at that moment. And you begin to look even in Acts chapter 6 when there's a discrimination between Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking widows. You know, the way that they handled that, I began to be encouraged that the church, once once Jesus had empowered them, the church handled things so differently than we're handling them today. And, you know, Reggie has been so patient because it's not my black friend or all of my black friends job to educate all the white people of the world. And, and that can be, we talk about that in the book, that can be a very, 
um, foreboding and, and overwhelming and, and really an, an assumption that we make. Um, but the privilege is not that, it, that the white privilege for many of us is that we think the conversation should be dictated upon by our ways of seeing the world instead of like, Hey, this, this is already happening. And you started the podcast saying that like, there is a problem that many of us are awakening to in a different way because of the events of the last you know two years in particular, um, that a lot of our friends have always been awake to. And, and we mm-hmm. kind of have this, Oh, wow. Racism is happening now. It's like, well, no. And so even that, and it's not about what's offensive or not offensive, but there's, there's a real lack of humility that I think I had, especially as someone who, you know, considered myself historically, you know, astute and someone who thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty progressive on this. Uh, but it, that wasn't about people. That was more about facts and, and even theological facts. Um, and so the encouragement for me, and it only comes through a humility that I'm still seeking to say, hey, I have a friend who's willing to walk with me through this so that I can learn and grow. Um, that's a blessing right there because he doesn't owe me that. And, and that that's, that's something that's enriched my life. Cause I probably was the kind of disciple you had to send away. Cause I would have been like, Oh, this is not how this works. You know, I'm always trying to put it into these logical places. Um, and so someone is willing to go, Hey, yeah, well, he didn't say, Hey dude, you're an idiot. How, how long has it taken you? And you're 42 years old and you're just now asking <laughs> like, you know, there's all that would have been just and justified. Instead, there's a sure man, let, let's go through this together. And, and we can't expect that from every relationship in life. And we can't be offended that it doesn't come because uh, there is a table. And, and we say that in the book, this is for everybody, what we're writing, what we're saying, these conversations. But we predominantly point this towards uh, white evangelical Christians. And the reason is not because there's not reverse racism or other things. We address that. It's because this particular conversation we're having from a gospel and historical context a lot of our black friends have already been at that table for a long time. It's yes. been it's been the white church that hasn't shown up at that table, besides just sort of some grand sweeping statements, where, which are amazing. And, and there's been a lot of denominational repentance and other things over the years. That that is a great place to start. But I like something I have to really be careful with, and that's you know where I'm still working on is that there's no arrival here. There's no like oh well got rid of the racism in my life, you know. Um, there is a, and, and that's a, a key central thing. Reggie has encouraged me, the gospel has encouraged me to ask myself the question, when was the last time I changed my mind about anything? And if you look at believers, and we do get into some political issues on this because they affect the racism issue. Uh, if you look at where we are from a gospel, ideological, political place right now, this big ball of burning wax that we're all in, it feels like, and the world feels like it's on fire and you don't want to bury your head in the sand or lose your head uh, in this just rage that we can be in. Like we ask that question because this book is really about, and, and Jamar Tisby says that there's an arc of racial justice and that's a, awareness and relationships. And then you take some sort of action, you commit to it. Uh, but then all three are important. We're really dealing predominantly with the awareness because, hey, believing in Christ is a changing of one's mind or the word for repentance in the original language is the turning of one's mind. And it's the grace of God that leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to that place. So it's not like he's beating us over the head with this, just like, because again, Reggie was Jesus to me. He didn't beat me over the head with it. He said, sure, mm-hmm. come, come close. And and in doing that, I have to, 
I'm not afraid to admit where I'm wrong. I'm wrong in so many places still. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's lifted up. The relationships in the church are lifted up. And I think that, as Reggie said, the world's not seeing that right now among a lot of the church. And and what they're seeing, they're they're sniffing out inauthenticity with that. Going, wait a second. I thought that I thought that you know this was supposed to be about love and all these sort of buzzword things that you can't have love, you know, without there being an, an admittance of a need for it, then and a vulnerability. And and you guys talk about that all the time. I I, I come to the table and I, I look at who uh, at who I am and and where I'm not where I should be, and I need outside assistance to be alive. I can't make myself alive by just wishing harder, trying harder and thinking harder about it. And so that for me has been such an encouragement that it's okay. It is okay to say that John missed it for a lot of his life and God has been gracious and Reggie's been gracious and lots of others have. It's not my job to fix it. I'm not you know, sweeping in as the white guy, as a savior to try to you know put a bandaid on this. I just want to sit and be present. I just want to be present and I want to keep growing and keep taking action and keep learning. But above all, it begins with being willing to change the way I think over and over again, not away from the gospel, but by listening with humility and hopefully responding with humility. Well, I think that's a great kind of segue to move forward because there's going to be a lot of people listening right now who over the last, like you said, two years have, you know, their hearts been stirred. And they want to learn, they want to grow, they they want to reconcile and restore relationships. But they really, they don't know how, they don't know where to begin. So can you guys kind of, you know, illuminate or help us to understand what would be some great first steps? Where can people begin? I think uh, John did it when he made a phone call. He just <laughs> called a pen. He made a phone call. He just made a phone call. He goes, hey, man, can we talk? <laughs> I, I told him they, they named the book wrong. I mean, not so black and white. That's good. But I told him they should have called it My One Black Friend. That would have been a better title. <laughs> I just, but, but that's just it. Starting is yeah. not no. Everybody wants the Martin Luther King Jr. moment. But Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. was the most hated man in the world back in the 1960s. So right. he, he, it starts with, with a relationship. It starts with a conversation. It may be four guys at coffee or, or seven guys at a conference, but it has to start. And if you get to initiate mm-hmm. it, initiate it. It just it's just walking down the road together. I also also picked up my phone, Beth, uh, after I well, actually even before I called Reggie. So that same night, I think I ordered and Jeff, you'll appreciate this. I think I ordered five books on Amazon to begin listening better, not just to a person, but also to history and to other things to go. Hey, it's not we talk about this. Reggie can't speak for all black people in America. You know, there's no such thing as a white community or a black community. We use those phrases and those are fine. There's, there's shared experiences and those things, but you're, you're going to find somebody, and that's what's happening today, t- to Reggie's point of the one black friend conversation. If somebody will have one black friend that says, oh, this is all, this is all nonsense, and this is just you know, liberal garbage and wokeness and all these things, and we're saying, hey, you know, ha- have a broader engagement. Have a broader engagement than just one person. And if you only have just one black friend, like many of us may <laughs> in our lives, maybe that says something. And it doesn't mean you're a racist or not a racist. You know, for, forget like the indictment. Like Try to get away from that insult. And that's what we say. I realized I was more worried about before the grace of God really opened up my heart to my true state, which is a joyful, it's, it's a horrible thing in theory till you realize what Jesus did to pay for it. When I'm open to that, 
I stopped being so worried about what I was doing wrong. And now I'm more concerned about what I haven't been doing right because I'm created anew in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand. I'll walk in. Am I walking in those? And the question is no longer, am I avoiding condemnation? I should already be outside of condemnation <laughs> in Christ. So if I'm like just walking around, and that's the biggest thing we've heard. I'm just so sick. Everyone calling us a racist. And I'll look at someone. I've asked a few white people who called you a racist in particular. Could, can you name them? Well, well, nobody, not really. Like there was a sense of self-condemnation over this because of all of the rhetoric. And so, okay, well, actually I'm not calling you that, you know? And, and so realize that regardless, even if you were, that doesn't change anything in, in the eyes of God in, in terms of his love for you or where he's calling us to, if you could just kind of disengage that, but yeah, call somebody, but man, open up your life to the information, to the conversations that maybe you were too insulted to listen to before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and your book is going to be a very helpful resource as well. So my question with that would be, how do you guys anticipate this book being a resource and a help to individuals, but also leaders and churches? I think the historical and biblical way that we viewed it and went after it, it really, it really does give you a, it's almost like a textbook. I don't think there's ever been a textbook for the church when talking about racism, but I believe this is pretty much that book. And, mm. and, 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 you know, it's not, you know, a lot of times like, oh, we really, we wrote a really great book. This is the last book I ever wanted to be a part of. <laughs> I did not, I wanted to do a kid's book on bullying. That's what I was doing next. <laughs> oh, wow. I did yeah. not see this coming down the street at all. But since it did, we, we're just going to meet it head on and say, God, use it. Use it to change change the church, change America, change the world, change lives. Because it's a world issue. And it's not, I know we're, we're looking at it black and white, but there's so many different races and so many different areas that we can go for here. But it's all the same principles. It's letting the faith we have in Jesus change the way that we view the world and view racism. And what can we do to change it? What Do, do like Jesus did love people. Well, and how can people that are listening actually get a copy of your book? I know right now you can go, if you go online to notsoblackandwhitebook.com, you got to make sure you put book in there, notsoblackandwhitebook.com. You can go there and start reading. I think they have like uh, part of the first chapter, first couple of chapters up, right, John? Yeah, you can. And you can also pre-order there. And it's actually super helpful uh, between now, October 12th is its release date. But if you, and again, we use that word textbook. One thing we've heard from the publisher, and this is the writer geeking out a little bit on this. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what we've heard is, is what we're you know, pleased with is there's a little bit of everything in this book because there's, there's conversation back and forth. So there's, you know, sort of personal narrative engagement. There is, you know, theology, but there's also uh, a lot of orthopraxy. There's a lot of putting this into practice. Uh, there's inspiration, there's story. And if you want to hear more about Reggie's story that he told or, or my story being raised as a white guy in Nashville, I mean, there, there's there's stories in there. But then also we do delve deep into a historical inventory uh, where we go, we, we we dive into that. And then there's a lot of sort of bringing it back to a place of, hey, there's there's no um, there's no ending to this. There's just, a, you know, taking the next step. So we do believe if for, I will say this, if you are insulted, if you feel, you know, sort of inflamed or, or if you feel like, ah, I just don't watch the news anymore. 
I get, we get that a lot too. I just can't. It, it's just too much. And so like we, we're not engaging as believers uh, because it's just too overwhelming or who, you know, this is the other thing we hear a lot is well, who, who knows what to believe anymore. You know, there's so much, no one knows what's true. And so those of us who proclaim uh, absolute truth the most as Christians are right now the most prone to deny the existence of absolute truth because we're so overwhelmed by it and we don't know how to engage. If you don't know how to engage, I mean, I'm not just saying this because this is our book. That's what we set out to do. This is a conversation about that because that's where I was. And, and so how can this be different? Uh, we think this would be a great resource to sort of get into that, that process uh, and, and maybe begin asking the right kinds of questions and not feel so overwhelmed or so enraged, either one, to find a middle ground to go. The, the gospel sort of puts out the worldly fires within us. It really, really does. It brings a sense of peace. Uh, and even if we're in the wrong, we can admit that. And there's such a freedom to that. So, uh, yeah, I would say, man, head to the website, check it out, pre-order it. And uh, it'd be something hopefully very helpful for you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being willing to spend some time with us. I, I, I praise God for your friendship and the fruit that this has borne uh, in a book and sharing about life and devoting your attention to such a uh, pivotal topic right now for the church to engage with. So thank you. Thank you, Reggie, for, Absolutely. although not desiring to write to write this book, that you did it anyway. Well, and, yeah, I was thinking, you know, as the peaceful accommodator, the type nine, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to write about this, and yet God's calling you. And, and that's what I love about how God calls each of us uh, to speak in areas that we may not want to, but yeah. to have that courage to do it and to push forward. And then John, for you to have the courage, you know, as a type six, like, well, what if, what if I ask the wrong question? You know, like, what is this going to hurt Reggie? Is this not, but you have the courage to say, I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to take the next, you know, courageous step forward. So thank you guys for all that you've done in this book. And I, I can't wait just to see what God's going to do moving forward. So thanks again for joining us. And, uh, You'll find all the links here in our show notes to go and pre-order the book and to head over to the website so that you can start even reading today. So thank you so much uh, for joining us, guys. Thank you, guys. Remember, the Enneagram reveals your need for Jesus, not your need to work harder. It's the gospel that transforms us. 